Welcome to a special edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Mr. Bill Hamlet, or I should say Captain Bill Hamlet, retired. How are you, sir? I'm great. So we're doing back-to-back shows. We were uh, with uh, Captain McGrath talking about would Nimitz succeed at Midway today. Just yesterday we were talking about that. Um, And today we have a very special edition of the show. We do. This is uh, a special edition in honor of uh, my boss, Fred Rainbow's retirement from the Naval Institute. So Fred Rainbow is the editor-in-chief of Proceedings. He has worked uh, at the Naval Institute since he left active duty from the Navy in 1975, worked here until about 2005, was the editor-in-chief for how many years, Fred? 20. 20 years as the editor-in-chief. He left and went to uh, AFSEA for a few years, came back to the Naval Institute 2014, uh, retook the helm of proceedings in 2016, and now is ready to retire to Gettysburg. Fred, it is great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's great. You guys have uh, created the podcast so that we have a new piece of uh, the Naval Institute. Yes, yeah, it's kind of been a little bit successful if you even look at the numbers. I was checking that out last night. The metrics are starting to get pretty good. But we should say up front that Bill and I are both rainbow acolytes and disciples. Neither of us would be on the mic or in the building without you. Um, so it's our pleasure. It's uh, It understates it to say this is a bittersweet week for us. Um, but let's go. Let's go back to the the earliest days of your time here. So, g- give us the scene uh, when you first joined the Naval Institute. From where did you come, and what attracted you to this place, and what were your first impressions? Well, I'm going to uh, probably break some of your uh, uh, positive feelings because I initially did not uh, apply for a job at the United States Naval Institute. I played a, applied at CIA, DIA, NSA. I was a naval intelligence officer like Bill. Hoorah. And got kind uh, of a mafia going on here. <laughs> and so uh, a senior chief, uh, Ray Taylor, uh, helped me with my resumes. It was early in computers. Uh, so I got an interview, an opportunity to interview with the Naval Institute. So I went to Ray Taylor and I said, I don't remember us sending a resume to the Naval Institute. <laughs> and he said, we did not send a resume to the Naval Institute. But it can't hurt you to practice with those people. So I drove up here, and it was the very first time I ever appeared or uh, touched Annapolis was the day I interviewed. So I was offered a job, show you how uh, naive I was. They said they'd pay me the same as the Navy paid me, but they weren't talking about allowances or anything else. So I started at less than I started (laughs) as a lieutenant in the Navy. So the offer was to be the editor. No, it was oh, to okay. be the department's editor. There were three people uh, for the proceedings at that time. There was the editor-in-chief, there was the articles editor, and the department's editor. They interviewed me for the departments. And so this is 1975 we're That's talking? That's right. Um, and we should remind the audience that at that time, the Naval Institute was in Preble Hall, not where we are now, a building we built as a gift to the Naval Academy. Um, so what was it like? Was it what you thought? Was it amazing right out of the box? Or what, what, what were your first impressions? Well, the power of the Naval Institute then and now uh, is that you have an open forum. Uh, I came from a building that was a Fleet Intelligence Center Atlantic. Uh, it had no windows. Uh, you go in in the darkness. Uh, you would stay for 10 or 12 hours, and you'd leave in the darkness. Uh, you thought you had special access to information, and then you'd read the New York Times. Uh, and the New York Times was a day or two behind you. 
Uh, what has happened today with smartphones and everything else is that the intelligence is about a couple minutes behind you, it seems. So uh, the thing that was really nice for me is as an intelligence officer, junior officer, the most junior officer out of 60, is uh, I played on the baseball team, a softball team, uh, the only officer on there. Uh, so the drafting team and the photo team created a photo of the parking lot, my car in the parking lot. Uh, they blew it up. Uh, they made a window. Uh, they gave my office a window so I could watch my car. <laughs> and then they had a Russian peeking over the corner of the window uh, so I could have a Russian as a part of my, uh, my office. So that's what we had. But the thing that's so nice about the Naval Institute, about the Open Forum, is that you can deal with, uh, give voice to people that have concerns. They want to make the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard better. And so we don't know the answer. The Naval Institute doesn't. So maybe it's a big carrier, maybe it's a small carrier. But we help whoever it is that's speaking, speak. Absolutely. So um, let's talk about some specific, or specific, some specific um, vignettes uh, that, that Bill and I know, but uh, the audience hasn't heard. So early in your tenure here, like within a year, you're approached by a, a midshipman um, who says he wants to write and 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 uh, and contribute. So t tell us about this this fellow. Well, I know who you're talking about uh, because at that time I was the youngest person at the United States Naval Institute. Uh, now I'm probably one of the most uh, elder people at the Naval Institute. But this guy came in and said that I want to help. I uh, need help with the log. And so for an OCS intelligence officer, the log is this green book that is on the quarter deck of a ship and you record certain things on that log so i looked at him with a scance uh ruined my credibility with the midshipman right away because i didn't know what the log was he explained the log was the naval academy's humor magazine uh he wanted help with the magazine i cut a deal with the midshipman i said i'll help you with the log if you help me with proceedings I helped him for about six months, and he continues to help me to this day. He's the uh, chairman of the Naval Institute's editorial board, Admiral Stavridis. So he's sort of uh, what chairman of the board use, of directors. Yeah. I'm sorry. but but he's been um, our you know our poster child for a guy throughout his career uh, who is very active in the Independent Forum um, and a guy who gets it in a way. Um, and so he's sort of uh, the the first example and maybe the best example of a guy who's been influenced by by fred rainbow and there are a, a, a well, litany of folks in in that list uh, who are uh, certainly names that the audience would know including winifel in fact it's funny at the annual meeting this year uh, there's sort of a running gun battle between stavridis and winifel as to who knew who know, has known fred longer which i think is really awesome that kind of competition you know so those are just two examples but they're you know, a, a bunch. The roster is long. Um, so what, those are the good memories. Um, <laughs> but being the guy who's been the uh, sort of custodian, gatekeeper, guarantor of the independent forum, there are 
that that isn't easy. I, I would maybe overstate it, say it comes at a cost. But you know, Bill and I know this intimately, uh, having been your wingman for for decades. Um, but what are when you think of those challenges? What was the first one that you had that you realized that this was something that had to be preserved and defended? Um, when, what do you remember the first one? You don't have to put the who in it necessarily. Um, but what what was the first one that you think of when you think of those sorts of challenges? Well, the ones I think of as the oldest probably was uh, a situation where we had an article that came in that talked about the vulnerability of the aircraft carrier. Uh, I wasn't off active duty very long. Uh, it seemed to me that the article ventured into classified areas. Uh, so I suggested we send the article to security review. Um, the editor and the publisher didn't think it was necessary, but if I thought it was, go ahead and do it. So we did that in February of a year, and things went on and passed on. And then the author called, and this was before email. Uh, the author called. He was a reserve officer. He happened to be the handicapper of the PGA. Uh, that's why he was able to do the statistical analysis on the vulnerability of the aircraft carrier because he had been at Ocean Venture at exercise and he thought the carrier was vulnerable. And uh, so he wanted us to share a copy of the article with somebody he had met on the tour, a uh, senator, a U.S. senator, Gary Hart. Uh, Gary Hart uh, believed in small carriers, not big carriers. And so I suggested to uh, our editor and our publisher that this was not a good thing for us, uh, but he owned the property. So we double-wrapped it. We sent it to uh, the senator, told him it was at security review, and uh, that was on a Thursday. On a Sunday, my wife comes out. I'm cutting the grass and says, the Washington Post wants to talk to you. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket science to, uh, scientist to figure out that there might be some correlation. Uh, so uh, I said I'd call back later. I called the editor. He said, talk to him. I said, I want to talk to the publisher. And I talked to the publisher. He said, talk to him. And so I talked to Morton Minsk of the Washington Post. Uh, I could hear the keystrokes in the background. Um, not good. And it's never good to appear on Tuesday in the Washington Post, above the fold in the left-hand column, uh, the Navy was slow rolling and trying to cover up the vulnerability of aircraft carriers. And so on Wednesday, I was a celebrity at the Naval Institute. And on Thursday, I was a pariah. Uh, so I had leaked classified information to Senator Gary Hart. Uh, the Navy had said that they had called me and uh, on the phone and told me it was classified somewhere between February and May. I don't remember seeing here having such a conversation. And so there was an investigation. So uh, where I feel really good is at 1030 at night, uh, Vice Admiral Walters, head of surface warfare, called me at night, said he was apologized uh, for calling so late, but he wanted me to be able to sleep that night because he had found his Navy had lied about calling me. So that was, then it went away. But that was very nice. So that set the tone, right? right. That you realized that you, you, the independent forum was in fact real. And perhaps you could even say that you would have top cover um, when things got tough, or at least you had one data point deep that perhaps you would have top cover. Well, the thing that's incredible about the profession is that in my experience, uh, there's a tendency to not want to talk about the tough issues. 
but there also is a force that exists uh, that knows that, for the most part, only bad things grow in the darkness. Uh, so to shine light on it saves lives in the long run, makes a, a profession stronger in the long run. It can hurt right now. It could even hurt us, an individual. But in the long run, if you're honest, if you're straight, that's the strength of the United States. Uh, picking up on that, uh, I would echo, you know, we just talked about Admiral Stavridis, who, Fred, you met as uh, Midshipman Stavridis in 1975. And he has written at every rank from Midshipman to Ensign, JG, all the way up to four-star Admiral. Uh, and now the chairman of our board, and at the annual meeting in May, when your uh, retirement was mentioned, Admiral Stavridis uh, made some, you know, I thought really great comments about how uh, important it is for somebody, uh, and, and you've sort of lived this in your career here at the Naval Institute, uh, as somebody who loves the Navy, uh, but loves it so much that you're willing to stand up for the forum and stand up for the ideas that often hold the mirror to the Navy so that it sees itself warts and all. And that's a tough position. That was, that was sort of how, I'm not saying it nearly as eloquently as Admiral Stavridis did, but that was the point was, hey, you know, you've got to love the Navy. That's what the, the purpose of this open forum is, is so that people in the, in the profession who want to make it better can point out the places where it needs to improve, right? Can point out those things that, yeah, you know, we, we aspire to be this. We're not, we're not there yet, right? Um, and Admiral, you know, Admiral Winnefeld was another acolyte of yours who you met. And tell that story because that's a non-Naval Academy ROTC story, but another one of the, you know, now retired four stars who met you early in his career and, and has written. Admiral Winnefeld was an NROTC student at uh, Georgia Tech, and he was one of the very first people I had an opportunity to edit. And he elected to go to uh, a civilian university because his father was the commandant of midshipmen here at the Naval Academy. He didn't want to put the extra pressure on his father, and he didn't want to put the extra pressure on him. If he decided, you know, that he wasn't going to go Navy, then that would reflect badly on his father. Uh, so he went through ROTC. He was very good, obviously. Um, and he wrote a piece about NROTC, uh, which we published and which I had an opportunity to edit. A uh, funny story related to that, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether you have an open forum, uh, is that at the time uh, we edited on paper. And so we had an English uh, lady who was our uh, copy editor, and she would write notes to the editors in pencil in the, in the margins. Did he mean north or did he mean south? Obviously, he meant north, but if you could read it either way, I need to fix it. So you go through it like that. But again, remember, she was British, so she wrote something in the margin. So then all of a sudden, about a week and a half later, because we always send the edited copy back to the author, so they have an opportunity to see if we understood what they wanted to say, and we work together. It's a team relationship between the editor and the author. So all of a sudden, I have midshipman James A. Winnefeld, Sandy, standing in front of my uh, desk. And I said, uh, he said, are you Mr. Rainbow? I said, yeah, I'm Fred Rainbow. And he goes, I'm not gay. I said, what do you mean you're not gay? Oh, I mean, what are you talking about? He says, right here, it says, because when you Xerox pencil 
if you don't erase it, uh, our copy editor had said he sounds gay. She means happy because she's British. <laughs> but when you, do, when you do it the other way, it can mean something else. So uh, fortunately for me, Sandy uh, confronted me face-to-face. I introduced him to Pat Perry, and we remain friends to today. So that was not the start of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, though. That was, it was not. You don't want to know that either. <laughs> uh, Fred, the other day I went to a, um, an event at the National Press Club where former Secretary of the Navy John Lehman uh, was introducing his book. It's a new book out called Oceans Ventured, uh, which references back to that uh, original um, you know, Cold right. War maritime strategy, uh, the first exercise where they took aircraft carrier strike groups or battle groups up above the GI-UK gap. And uh, when I talked to Lehman uh, briefly afterwards and had him sign a copy of the book for me, um, he said to say farewell to you. He remembered you fondly. Um, he remembered the role that you played in uh, helping the Navy publish the, maritime, the, the unclassified version of the maritime strategy in the early 80s. So tell that story because that's an interesting one where Proceedings, the Naval Institute worked with the Navy on publishing something that wasn't a proceedings article, but we wanted to get the word out, uh, you know, help the Navy get its word out on what the strategy was. No, it's, uh, it's a nice par- uh, discussion of the right partnership. Uh, there's some people that would say, put it in the magazine, we get credit, quote, unquote. Uh, it was not part of the open forum. It was an official publication. Uh, so fortunately for us, uh, the two primary players who worked for uh, Secretary Lehman uh, were Peter Schwartz and uh, John Byron. Uh, those two people did a lot of work in the front end, and then they worked with me. So they gave the Naval Institute copies of uh, John Lehman, uh, Admiral Watkins, and P.X. Kelly. Uh, they told us that we could edit them as we would edit them. Uh, so, as a matter of fact, those three pieces were edited over a weekend above my garage, uh, and we gave them back to the authors to review, as we always do. Uh, and so that's how we got to uh, the the words. Then to for publication, uh, we published them in a special, what we called a white paper, and sent them out with a copy of the magazine. So they were bound together by plastic, but it stood alone as the Maritime Strategy Supplement, unclassified. So uh, that's how we got to to that piece. I mean, it's a great example of the credibility that the Naval Institute has. Um, And at once we want to be of value to the sea services that that our mission directs that we serve but independent so walking that line because you can get co-opted in the middle of playing nice and fred knows that better than anybody um let me interrupt you for one second to give you one footnote about peter schwartz peter schwartz uh in our navy it's pretty hard to make captain without a warfare specialty specialty uh peter didn't have one uh all peter is is smart and he cares and so he ended up as special assistant to uh, Colin Powell, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Army General. So one of the jobs, I get a call from Peter one day, and he says, I'm a captain in the United States Navy. They've issued me a, a bunch of post notes and a yellow highlighter. 
Last night, one of my jobs is to read magazines and newspapers for the chairman. So last night, I used a whole highlighter and a whole thing of post notes on the current issue of proceedings. And I sent it in. Now, I'm going to be patted on the head by the chairman because I did a good job. And so it comes out in five minutes. He couldn't have had read all my notes. And I read a note from him. Peter, this one you don't have to read for me. I read this one at home. So the Naval Institute has as a life member uh, Colin Powell. That's amazing. I love that. And, and a footnote to that story is that Colin Powell admired proceedings and wanted something like it for the Joint Force. Right. And so Joint Forces Quarterly was started under his tenure as the chairman uh, with – in my having in mind the model that proceedings uh, offered. In fact, he sent two Air Force uh, colonels over here to spend some time with us. And if you take the first issue of uh, Joint Forces Quarterly and the current issue at then of uh, proceedings, they look organizationally a lot better. What's unfortunate is their paper is much better. Because the United States government can afford better paper than the Naval Institute can. <laughs> well, and General Powell uh, remains uh, very active with, with our various forums. Uh, he was a uh, panelist at our uh, uh, Flag Officers and Politics uh, Forum last uh, fall when we did that over here at the Alumni Hall. Uh, I entreat the audience, if they have not watched that, that they watch, go up to our, our YouTube channel and watch that uh, panel, it's amazing. There's some great repartee between General Powell and Bob Woodward and uh, former CNO Roughhead and some other people on that panel. It's really a good one. So Colin Powell, uh, he didn't just fake it for a little bit. He's in it, as you said, he's a life member, and he walks that walk. I'm sure. I'm surprised Bill didn't point out that Bob Woodward served as a reserve and naval intelligence officer at one time. Yes. What's up? <laughs> Usually, you guys mention that fact at every at every turn. So, speaking of famous people associated with the Naval Institute, let's talk about Tom Clancy real quick, uh, because uh, I, we've probably mentioned it on the show before that the first work of fiction ever done by the Naval Institute Press was Hunt for Red October. Um, it was on your watch. Um, so, talk to us about your relationship with both that guy and getting that book to print and beyond. Well, that's a nice chapter of the Naval Institute's history, but when I first started to work for the Naval Institute, didn't know much about the policies. So uh, the EA for Admiral Stockdale at the Naval War College at the time was John Morris, and John Morris did a review of Jim Webb's book, Fields of Fire. So I'm the department's editor. I edited it and put it together, and we're going to publish it in the current issue of the magazine. At that time, the publisher, CEO, had a watchdog who watched what the proceedings people were going to put into print before they put it into print, make sure they didn't make a mistake. He read book reviews, and he took it into the head shed or into the CEO's office, and we got a call. So we go upstairs, what are you trying to do? And I said, I, didn't, I don't understand the question. He said, we don't review or publish fiction. Doesn't make much sense to this reserve officer uh so we listened to this and i went back to my office so i called john morris and i said john it seems to me you could write a letter to the editor comment and discussion and then use your book review as a case study on why we should review fiction so john rewrote edited a piece i added a little more and we published it 
Uh, the watchdog didn't look at letters to the editor until later. Uh, so we published it, and uh, one of the board members came to the next board meeting and said, what kind of policy is this? And uh, the uh, Bud Buller at the time said, explain the policy. He said, who makes policy? The editorial board. So the board member made a motion that we review and publish fiction. And so we did. So soon after that, Tom Clancy has Hunt for Red October. Uh, he had developed a relationship with the magazine staff because we published a letter of his, the very first thing he ever had published. Uh, he said our seminar program sucked, uh, and we published it. And then he had a, uh, an idea for basing MX missiles. He wanted to put them on LCACs, put them out in the Midwest, fired them. We sent them to two uh, engineers. They said it would melt the platform, but it doesn't matter. Uh, it'll work, so we published it. Third time he had Hunt for Red October. <laughs> <laughs> so he had went to no other publisher, uh, went to us, and we published that book. The second bestseller we published, the second novel we published, was Flight of the Intruder. Now, he had the reverse experience. Steve Kuntz had had 33 rejection notices before he came to us. We were the publisher of Last Resort. So uh, so we turned that book in, too. Uh, but I'd encourage all of you to look at the first book of Tom Clancy's book, first book of Steve Kuntz. Both of them are pretty thin. So the first four chapters of Hunt for Red October, you died with Mrs. Ramus. Uh, it was a terrible way to start a book. Uh, it would You had to be very loyal to read the whole book. So our editor sliced those four chapters. They ended up on the floor. And Ramus just mentions to his exo the reason why he's stealing uh, a submarine. Because the um, medical system, the Soviet medical system, failed him, failed his wife. They ended up leaving a, uh, a sponge in the chest cavity of his wife, and she died. And the book would have died, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you, you, those, those sort of facts, and you, you, you don't think about how fragile a book is as it goes to market, not to mention the thing about the legend about Reagan holding it. and Because and, it was sort of sitting there, not really rocking the, the bestseller list right out of the box. Uh, and then Reagan... Uh, check me if I'm right on this, but he was holding it, and somebody asked, "Hey, what's the book?" And he's like, "Hey, it's great. Hunt for October. You got to read it." And that was it, right? That just broke it. Um, and uh, well, yeah. the the line is close it, that I have is that he was on his desk. He's being interviewed by Time Magazine, and one of the throwaway questions that you would have is, "What's your most recent book?" Or, "What do you like?" What have you? Had? Oh, I like this book. And so all of a sudden, on the Oval Office, you have the president holding up your book. It ain't bad. No, it's a pretty good endorsement. Now, yeah. I, I thought we might talk a little bit about another one of our novel well, authors. Which one's that? I was going to ask that. <laughs> yeah, how, did, how did your decision to uh, publish Punk's War here, how was that influenced by Fred? Well, so I met Fred in 1989. Um, I was introduced to him by a mutual friend of ours named Dave Parsons, who was the editor of the Naval Safety Center's Aviation Magazine, Approach. So I was taking over from Dave as the editor of Approach in 1989. Um, and, you know, Dave's going through the list of people you've got to meet and so forth and so on, and, and high on that list was Fred Rainbow. Um, so we never made it to Annapolis from Norfolk before I actually had the opportunity to meet Fred, which was at the Tailhook Convention in 1989. 
And so our, the, my turnover with Dave was ongoing, you know, and, and it, it was months long. Um, and so we go to the Naval Institute's booth at the Hilton at Las Vegas in 1989, and he introduces me to Fred. So I'm complaining as we're, you know, having conversations by the pool there at the Hilton, and I'm just telling these sea stories, and Fred's, you know, in his normal way, just listening. And uh, I, I'm sort of saying this is how my first tour went, and some of the things that were you wouldn't think about, you know, because you're in a fighter squad and it's got to be awesome. I'm like, well, there's some things that weren't so awesome, and so forth and so on. So Fred said in his uniquely Fred Rainbow way, that sounds like a great proceedings article. So he sort of called me out for being the potential poser I could have been, right? So at that point, I started contributing to the forum. Now, fast forward, so that's 1989, fast forward to 1998. I'm now assigned to the Naval Academy on the faculty. Um, my office is in Loose Hall. I live here on Hospital Point in one of the little bungalows. Um, so as I would walk home, especially in the wintertime, the sun would be down, it would be dark, and I would see a lone light in the tower because they moved from Preble Hall to Beach Hall in 1999, and Fred really mu very much facilitated that move, um, including the funding piece. So when I saw the light on, I would walk through the side door and walk up to the fourth floor, and if he wasn't on the phone, and a lot of times he was on the phone doing business, connecting the dots, talking with people who mattered, we would sit and chat, basically, as we say, solve all the Navy's problems, right? So that those conversations became the themes of Punk's War. So I had started a book some years before that, that was sort of this idea that it was a, almost a response to what I was seeing in the techno-thriller world, that things always worked great. And if you had an airplane with six missiles, all six missiles would fire and hit their targets, and the CO was always an awesome guy. Not quite my experience, um, and so I wanted to capture that, right? So based on, and now I sprinkled in the 30,000-foot view that was Fred's that he was offering to me. Um, so I was in academia, so it was okay to be writing a novel, right, in a squadron. You're like, what are you doing? And here, you know, somebody walk into my office, and I'd be heads down and like, what are you working on? My novel. Like, that's awesome, right? I mean, because <laughs> I'm in life of the mind, and I'm teaching English, and, you know, um, so it was a fertile place to write the book, right? So handed the first four chapters to Tom Cutler, who's still here. He was the acquisitions editor at the press uh, back then. He calls me back. He says, I love it. Where's the rest? Funny thing. Haven't written it yet. <laughs> so I, I seriously put my head down. So from that was uh, Valentine's Day till about Memorial Day, I finished the last half. First guy I gave it to was Fred Rainbow. And Fred, being the earnest person he did, because some people will go sort of wave their hands over, yeah, this is awesome, great. So he did a deep dive, and based on his inputs, I sharpened it another iteration. Further, Fred, once it was in a form that he thought was worthy of the attention of the publisher, a guy named Ron Chambers, Fred walked it down there. So that's what Fred has done in my life. Right, because I mean, there's no other singular thing that changes the trajectory of my life as much as the Punk's War being published. It came to the attention of Chris Michael, who again, Fred Rainbow put us on a panel of a previous CEO on a hiring committee together. That's how I met Chris Michael. Chris Michael knew about me because of Wait for It, Punk's War. So, Punk's War wouldn't have been published without Fred. I wouldn't have been the editor of Military.com for nine years with nine years without Fred, and I certainly wouldn't be working here without Fred. So. 
Fred liked this book because it was an unflinching but accurate and loving portrayal of life in a fighter squadron. I wasn't telling secrets out of school. Fred knew where my heart was, and he ensured the final project captured all of those elements. So, in essence, Punk's War is a fictionalized version of a Proceedings Magazine article, which I've said to people for many years, and I'm proud of that fact. I'm also proud that I was published by the Naval Institute Press. Unlike Kuntz and Clancy, um, I, I didn't become an amazing rock star. I was picked <laughs> up by New York, and I, in, in hindsight, I wish I'd stayed with the Naval Institute. And I know Stephen Kuntz feels that way, too. Um, and, in fact, I brokered detente uh, with Stephen Kuntz when I was on the faculty here with he and Fred and everybody else, and he came back into the fold um, in a way that we were never able to get Tom Clancy back into the fold, which is right because Stephen Kuntz is an attack pilot, Navy attack pilot, and this is his tribe. You can argue whether Tom Clancy, the insurance salesman, felt that way. Um, but the point is, is Fred is the guy who saw the merit of this idea. This idea was born of conversations with Fred. That's it. So that's the story. Fantastic. Hey, um, Fred, I wanted to ask you, so when you joined the Naval Institute in 1975, you've had a, uh, you know, a ringside seat on all the issues that have faced the Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard, uh, including because I think you got the uh, conferences program that the Naval Institute does kicked off and energized. And so the speakers that have been part of that, you know, from commandants and and CNOs to, uh, you know, future leaders who at the time were lieutenants and lieutenant commanders and majors. Um, but you've had a ringside seat on the biggest issues that have faced the sea services from 75 till today. Uh, what were the things that you thought the Navy was struggling with and got right early on and is struggling with and you hope to see it get right, you know, today? Well, in the early years, uh, the, the focus was pretty pretty narrow. Uh, the Russians were the, uh, the aggressors, in our view, uh, were the threat. Uh, what uh, President Reagan and John Lehman saw uh, is that you could beat them, and uh, they did. And they did it primarily through the Navy and the maritime strategy. They showed uh, the Soviets they could not beat the United States. Uh, they spent themselves into trouble. Uh, the thing that's scary that for me today, um, we have now uh, somebody I'd recommend to your readers, uh, Kevin Iyer, uh, writes a column for proceedings. He also writes a number of articles. He's commanded three Navy ships. He's a retired captain. We've had him on the podcast. He is outstanding. He is outstanding. His heart is in the right place. Um, he's put his finger on the pulse. Right now, readiness is a problem for the Navy. Um in Rainbow's view, uh, people need to be able to say no. You can't do everything, so you need to prioritize. Uh, an, argument, uh, an article that is going to be published, or I guess was published uh, in proceedings today, by a lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Stephanus. Uh, he's asking about uh, how can you have a big Navy like we have and send a $2 billion destroyer to a small country and do a, a bilateral operation. That doesn't make sense. Uh, one, you're going to swarm them or swamp them because they don't have anything like your Aegis-class destroyer. 
one second you can't afford to send that thing to, to exercise with them, why can't you send something like Sabrowski saw as a street fighter, a cheap pl- uh, platform that could play that role? And then you can keep your big expensive thing for expensive problems. So uh, we bastardized the literal combatant ship. That's nothing like Admiral Sabrowski had as envisioned for the street fighter. He looked for a cheap, fast uh, alternative. Instead, we have an expensive, sort of fast, breakable alternative. <laughs> uh, readiness is a big problem. People are a problem. Uh, they should. Be, people are the biggest assets of a United States Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. They need to be taken care of. Two of the people that impressed me most about the United States Navy um, are a, a lieutenant uh, who I met at West at our symposium, um, Ben Coleman. He started the uh, deaf group or the disruptive thinkers. Their guy is a Siova squadron, was Siova squadron, uh, Bus Snodgrass. Now, something's wrong with our Navy when Ben Coleman now is in uh, Austin, Texas as a civilian with a master's from Stanford and uh, Bus Snodgrass is a civilian in the Pentagon. That's wrong because they should be in the United States Navy. So we've named Stavridis, Winnefeld, Coleman, Snodgrass. Who are some of the other names as you think about the greats or the ones who've become remain friends or that you thought were best represented the independent forum? Well, just off the top of your head, who are some names that come Larry to Larry Dorita's one. Uh, Larry Dorito served on an Aegis-class ship. Uh, he had one of the best titles. We, we worked together on titles, authors and editors. Uh, I believe this is his title right from, the, from him. We went joint. I went joint, but I didn't inhale. <laughs> <laughs> Clinton era. <laughs> it is. And so, uh, but he's a tough guy. He wrote the only piece of fiction, of uh, satire that we put in proceedings that I did. Um, he had a, we had lost our carriers. We're down to one carrier. We're down to one cruiser. Uh, the carriers on rain uh, forest protection patrol off Brazil. Uh, the NATO commander doesn't want him to operate his jets because they're too warlike. He's a little angry, the CEO is, because his uh, air filtration system is the same as the uh, children's uh, daycare center area, so he's not allowed to smoke his cigars. Uh, His relief is a little late getting there because she's had a problem with her pregnancy, So, so it was pretty tough. Uh, we probably went over the edge when we called the last carrier the USS Borda and the last cruiser the USS Pat Schroeder. Uh, so yeah, it, just a it created a little bit of uh, trouble. One of the letters we published just was like via midshipmen. 1995, I think, is yeah. the, the year. That yeah. sounds right. 94, yeah. 95. Yeah. So one of the midshipmen here at the Academy said that uh, in the future, our suggestion is, or his suggestion was, that if you're going to publish satire, you should publish on the front, this is satire. Uh, that seemed to undercut the <laughs> purpose of the problem, uh, but it uh, gave us another opportunity to see if we wanted to fire for a rainbow, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so really, I know Admiral Dunn has been very influential well, and, and very, very much uh, your guy. 
Admiral Dunn is uh, the – you said uh, Admiral Stavridis is a poster child. Another one of the poster children uh, of the Naval Institute is Bob Dunn. Uh, Bob Dunn has done everything. He's um, been chairman of the editorial board. He's written a book. Uh, he has served as an interim press director when we had to fire our press director. Um, he defines integrity and action indeed. Uh, he was chairman of the editorial board. We had an article that said, Deep Six, Deep Strike. He was the head of naval aviation. He's a deep strike guy. So at that time, we would send in the votes by uh, fax machine. One's missing. So I called his EA and I said, Dutch Roush, Dutch, uh, one of the admiral's votes is missing. Nah, it's not missing. He's going to bring it himself. Ah, <laughs> oh, good. So we have at the time two rear admirals, one vice admiral, and a bunch of 06s, 05s, and one 03. And so all the 06s and below voted outstanding article, super article. The two admirals voted discuss. So Admiral Dunn comes in, sits down at the table. We get to that article because we do them by number. And so we get to this article. And so uh, Admiral Carroll, what's your vote? You have discuss here. Well, what's your vote? Admiral Carroll says, uh, I wanted to hear from you, sir. You know all about naval aviation, and I wanted to hear about you first. But what's your feeling? So Dunn says to Carroll. So Carroll says, well, I kind of agree with my colleagues. Good. Admiral Hamlet, what do you think? Well, I'm kind of like with Admiral Carroll. So, uh, you know, so I have to assume that you kind of with your colleagues. Yes. Good. He throws down his pencil, never has any temper. And for the next five minutes, he tells us why this article is no good. At which time, Admiral Carroll and Admiral Hamlet are ready to change their votes. Because it only takes two negative votes to kill an article at that time. So Admiral Dunn goes, no, 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 no. This board has already accepted this article for publication. We're going to publish this article. And when I walk down the halls of the Pentagon, people are going to come out and they're going to say, Bobby, what happened? And I'm going to say, son of a gun, those guys, those bastards outvoted me. <laughs> so, but that's when he walked in that editorial board, he worked for the Naval Institute. When he walked out of that editorial board, he worked for the United States Navy. But uh, he ran 05, but he also ran the Naval Institute. And his other argument was that if Bob Dunn can't beat Chuck Myers on this article, argument for argument, then we ought to fire Bob Dunn. Yes, that kind of perspective is rare. I mean, I, I love that. I love that. Well, uh, unfortunately, Fred, we're out of time for the show here. Um, but uh, uh, appreciate you coming by and, and sure. uh, reminiscing with us. It's great to put it down for pros parity and uh, posterity rather um let me give you one more before we go just okay. one second and that you asked about other people one other person is al gray uh al gray understands strategic communications and this is something i've tried to share with everybody that i've ever come in contact with so we would add, i've met him when he was at brigadier general uh unconventional he started out enlisted he chews tobacco and he reads more books than anybody ever read except maybe mattis so here's this guy, uh, great theater. I mean, you want him in a seminar, whether he's one star, two star, three star, four stars. So anytime you would, we would always invite him to be in a seminar. And so anytime he was on the phone, you knew that he wasn't going to come because, sorry, I'm not the right guy. You want Colonel Zinni. 
You want Colonel Dumford. You want Brigadier General Krulak, whoever. So he introduced us to all these people. So I had lunch with him about six months ago, and I said, this was a nice thing you did, General, because when you were coming, I talked to the captain. What do you want the general to say? Because you can say anything you want. He's going to say what he wants. So uh, I said, but what you did was very nice. He goes, nah, never did it for you. Only did it for the Marine Corps because I was afraid you would invite an admiral. So instead, I got to keep the invitation. <laughs> so it's a smart thing. It's smart communication. So he came out with his list of books, only 10 books on his reading list. One for O one, one for an O for an E one, ten for O ten, E ten. So uh that's the list. So he puts out an all Marine Corps message. This is my list. Better read it. Next day he flies helicopter into Lejeune. Under the prop wash he puts his arm around the Marine Corps captain. And they talk seems like forever, but it's only a minute, right? So now all the generals want to talk to the captain. What the hell did he say? He wanted to know which frickin' book I'd read. So everybody in the Marine Corps read one book in the next 24 hours. <laughs> Smart communication. Yeah, fantastic. That's it. Well, I know Bill has said many times in the previous months that he's filling size 16 shoes, and maybe that's not big enough. But, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to put into words um, what you've done for the Naval Institute, it's hard to put into words what you've meant to my life, and I know Bill feels, feels the same way. Amen. If there was uh, an heir to the throne, it is Bill. Um, so those who are Rainbow fans, be of good cheer. Further, although you're going to Gettysburg, you're not going to be Nordo, and you are the editor-in-chief emeritus. Um, and we, if you don't feel that way, we're going to help you with that. Um, but, uh, again, you cannot state enough what your uh, contribution has been to the independent forum. Um, so thank you for that, and thank you uh, for being on, on the show. I would just add that I hope that this is chapter one of Fred's oral history. So the Naval Institute has uh, some amazing oral histories in our archive, uh, and I think we need an oral history of Fred Rainbow because his stories, uh, as we mentioned yesterday, a thousand and one sea stories or a thousand and one stories about authors and uh, articles and pushback from the Navy or the Marine Corps and how the open forum uh, over time has triumphed. So, uh, Fred, it's just been an honor working no, for you. That's an honor to have had an opportunity to work for the Naval Institute. Thank all you. All right. Well, this is probably the best example of um, all the podcasts we've had that uh, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Join us again next week, folks, and thanks for tuning in. Thank you.